This morning's reading comes from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive. And as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Lord, would you speak to us by your word? Specifically, we ask that you would show us how it is that we can live this greater righteousness, how we are to read the story and live the story and what that means for us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, how do you read the Bible? How do you understand and apply those 66 books in hard copy or digital that you're holding in your hands this morning? How do you read the Bible? At risk of speaking too generally, here are some categories we can put Bible readers into. There are those who read the Bible just and only for personal transformation, right? You're most comfortable perhaps calling the Bible, not the scriptures or or referring it to to it as some ancient text, but calling it uh, God's love letter to you. There are those who read it to gain information, right? Maybe you've gone to seminary, you spent a lot of time uh, buying books, learning languages, and you want to access the head knowledge, and you want to extract that from these ancient texts. Or maybe you just read the Bible historically. The Bible, you think, actually has little to do with this world now, and it's just meant to tell us about the ancient world, the first century world, the world that it was written in. Maybe history is not your thing at all. Maybe you read the Bible with the hopes of adopting it to your social agenda, your ideology, or your political campaign. There are countless ways people read the Bible. And while it might be tempting in our day and age to say, well, you just read the Bible however you want to read the Bible, whatever works for you, and what we'll discover this morning is that Jesus thinks there's a way that we should read the Bible. That Jesus, on the topic of reading and understanding and applying the scriptures, is not silent. Matthew five seventeen to 20 is this notoriously dense text. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for us this morning. We'll need to do some work today to ensure we are understanding what Jesus wants to communicate to us. But let me promise you something, that the payoff, if we get what Jesus is saying this morning, the payoff is huge. It's significant. Many of us, I, I hope, I hope, are beginning this new year with an ambitious Bible reading plan. This is the year you read the Bible cover to cover and you get it, right? Maybe you're starting in that mind frame uh, this morning. And what happens to a lot of people, and I put myself in that camp, is that you get to a place at times in your Bible reading and things get a little bit weird. You're okay with Genesis, you're okay even with, with, with Exodus, but now you're in Leviticus, and you don't quite understand what this has to do with your life today. Unsure of how this is to change us, what it means for us, we throw in the towel. And really, it's, it's not just Leviticus. There's a whole bunch of the Old Testament that we really, many of us, don't know what to do with. And if understanding our Bibles is a problem, well, good luck trying to live it out. 
this morning, Jesus is going to meet us in our frustration, in our confusion. That's my promise. And he's going to say something like this. Here, let me teach you how to read the story. More than that, let me teach you how to live the story. Those are our two points this morning. Really simply, point number one, in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, our first point is this. Jesus teaches us how to read the story of the Bible. Our second point today, building off of that, is this. Jesus teaches us what it means to live the story of the Bible. Really simply, Jesus teaches us what it means to read the story of the Bible, how we're to read the story, and also to how we're to live the story. Again, I want us to get this because it's so important for how we read, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but indeed our whole Bible. So point number one, Jesus teaches us how to read the story of the Bible. I want us, if we can, to begin by looking again at Matthew five seventeen to 18. If you can read that with me. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now I want us to take these verses in parts before finally coming to a conclusion of what exactly we think Jesus is driving at. And the first thing we need to see is that in teaching us how to read the story of the Bible, Jesus says we are to read all of it, the whole thing. We just read, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as the law. And the phrase, the prophets, would have included the rest of the Jewish scriptures, including uh, the, the Psalter. Jesus is effectively talking about the whole Old Testament. And he's not just talking about the commandments or specific prophets or just the, the high points of the Old Testament. He's talking about the whole story of God and his people up until this point in history. So we should not read the law and the prophets as just, you know, some certain commandments, some, some, you know, the Ten Commandments or some certain laws. Jesus is effectively saying the whole story of God and his people up until this point. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus says very clearly, I have not come to do away with this story, to throw it away. And which should make us ask the question, why would people think that? Why would Jesus feel the need to say this to the mountainside crowd? Why would Matthew feel the need to inscribe this for our reading today? See, for the next six weeks, we're going to encounter a formula that sounds like this. Six times we will hear, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Again, you've heard that it was said, but I, but I say to you. Now this formula, if we understand it wrongly, could lead the crowds to think, could lead us to think, that Jesus is doing away with the whole Old Testament. That we might as well cut that part out of our Bibles. Which, if we can pause for a moment, is exactly what some in church history have proposed we do. If we can have a brief uh, Know Your Heretics moment, if we can do that uh, this morning. Uh, there was this guy named Marcion who lived in the first and second century who didn't care much uh, for the God of the Old Testament. Maybe you can relate to that. And he couldn't quite square the God of the Old Testament and his vindictiveness and his you know, jealousy and wrath uh, with the God as seen in Jesus in the New Testament. And so he proposed uh, two things. And the first is this, uh, that really the Old and New are talking about two different gods and therefore... Christianity must make a clean break from Judaism. A clean break, especially from their scriptures. 
Now, before we feel high and mighty and look down on Marcion, we need to recognize that if we're to think and just reflect on the parts of the Bible that you've actually read and enjoyed and, and understood this past year, we'd quickly realize that many of us are functional Marcionites. Maybe we don't think that the Old Testament God is a different God, but, but largely unsure of what to do with the Old Testament, largely unsure of how the Old Testament fits with the New, uh, we don't read our entire Bibles. We, we choose and, and we pick from those that seem immediately accessible and, and their meanings obvious. And the first thing we need to see this morning is that Jesus' vision for his kingdom involves one continuous story running through the Old and New Testament. He has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Somehow, some way, Israel and their story are finding their fulfillment, their goal, their purpose, their meaning, and not their ending in Jesus. Which leads us to the second thing that we need to see. Jesus wants us to read all of the story with him at the center of it. Again, Jesus said this. Go look back at your Bibles with me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is huge. How we answer fulfill here will directly shape how we read and live the story of the Bible. So what does Jesus mean when he says, not abolish, but to fulfill them? And the first thing we should note is this. In the context of Matthew's gospel, like where we're reading what Jesus is saying right now, uh, Matthew, he's not introducing something new here. And Matthew has been working hard throughout chapters 1 to 4 to show his readers, to show us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That the whole story, that the whole thing has been pointed to him, indeed is fulfilled in him. Matthew's been making this claim throughout, and he will continue to make this claim past our text this morning. So when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, he is telling all who would hear that the story of Israel, a story we are grafted into, has reached its goal in him. Note this. It's not just in his teachings. See, some would say, well, Jesus just shows us how to understand the law or how to understand the prophets. He's just another teacher. But no, when Jesus says fulfill, he's saying this, in my teachings, yes, but in my life, in my death, in my resurrection, in my exaltation, and in my imminent return, I will, I will, and I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. In other words, we need to read the story of the Bible and all of its 66 books, not as unconnected, disjointed episodes, but as one story that is held together and understood and lived out in Jesus. And if this is still too abstract for you, you're thinking, what does this really mean for me today? Let me invoke someone smarter than me to help us out. Uh, Scott McKnight, he's a Bible teacher, he's a scholar, he writes about Jesus' pronouncement that he does not abolish but fulfill like this. Look with me. From the moment these words were uttered, McKnight says, nothing was the same. From that moment, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Malachi were read as texts that in a large canvas and in small brushstrokes pointed toward Jesus. From this point on, purely historical readings, what it meant then will be unsatisfactory. 
The story must be read toward Christ the way someone has learned to read a good, a good novel. Say, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, or, or a good short story, say, Parker's Back by Flannery O'Connor. We read them, and then reread them. And the more we know them, the more we read from the ending and not from the beginning. We read the Bible the way we interpret, McKnight says, a great season for our favorite sports team. We learn to see the first competition as setting the stage for the victory at the end of the season. And so, for example, for example, when we read Genesis 1, maybe you read that in your Bible plan recently, when we read Genesis 1, we're not to read it as some general God doing some sort of general creation, but rather we should and we need to read it as a Trinitarian act, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we know how the story ends. We know what happens later on in the story. We have this progressive revelation of Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. Or for example, when we read in Genesis 3 about a descendant of Adam who will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, inflicting damage on himself in the process, it is not only okay to think that Jesus maybe is this snake crusher. No. But if we are to read the Bible properly, we must see that Jesus is the snake crusher. We must see that Genesis 3 looks to Jesus who crushes Satan even as he dies a criminal's death on the cross. We are to read all of the Bible with Jesus at the center as the fulfillment of it. As my favorite uh, children's Bible author puts it, every story whispers his name. It's important to know that Jesus believes this about himself so strongly it appears in John and, and Luke's gospel as well too. In Luke's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, he, he leads some disciples on a Bible study. And in Luke 24, 27, listen to what Jesus says to these disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this would be an egocentric way to read the scriptures. Oh, it's about me. It's how we do it sometimes. It's about me and my life. Uh, unless you're Jesus. Unless you're Jesus, the Son of God. And we'll see that in a bit. In John's Gospel, listen to the words that Jesus speaks to some hard-hearted uh, scripture experts. John five thirty-nine to 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Listen. And it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus said. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It shouldn't surprise us then that the rest of the New Testament authors pick up on this conviction that Jesus is the fulfillment, the center, the goal of the story. That Jesus is the one whom the whole story hinges on and, and points to. So for example, listen to the language that Paul uses when he compares Old Testament food laws and festivals to Jesus in Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2, 16-17. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Listen to what Paul writes. These are a shadow, these festivals, these laws, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things were a shadow. 
faint glimpses, reflections of the substance, the meaning that has come in Jesus. In other words, in this context, Paul says these things were pointing forward to the righteousness that would be ours through Christ's death on the cross alone. Wow. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking of a very popular critique of Christianity and it goes like this. Well, Christianity is inconsistent. It's inconsistent. For example, you Christians don't keep the Levitical code. You eat shellfish. I saw you last night eating oysters, Pastor Jake. What are you doing? Right? You wear clothes with mixed fabrics. Right? right? That's a polyester cotton blend. Uh, uh, uh. Can't do that. Right? You don't send a woman outside the camp who's, who's menstruating. Right? You don't put your wife outside the house when she's menstruating. Isn't that what the Levitical code asks? See, what this argument fails to acknowledge It's exactly what we're learning this morning. In fulfilling the story of Israel, we find we now read the beginning of the story, Levitical code included, in light of the end of the story, Jesus and his fulfillment. And so we look at the temple system, for example, and we learn that Jesus is the perfect priest and sacrifice, making payment for our sin in a way that our own offerings, our own deeds even never could. We look at the kosher laws. We look at all these purity laws and rituals. And we see how Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, how it purifies us and sets us apart in a deeper way than not eating bacon ever could. Notice, we are not cutting out the Old Testament from our Bible. In fact, maybe you just realize this, quite the opposite is happening. Jesus is giving meaning and depth and richness to the Old Testament that simply does not exist without him. Let me say that again. This is so important. Jesus is giving meaning and depth and richness to the Old Testament that without him, if we're to take Jesus out of the story, it does not exist. The story does not reach its goal, its intended purpose. Again, We need to acknowledge that at different times in church history, uh, the church has been either really good at recognizing this or really bad at recognizing this. At times, there have been these movements that sought to prioritize uh, the quote-unquote words of Jesus over and above the rest of the Bible. And maybe this morning you have a a red-letter Bible. Now, I have nothing against red-letter Bibles per se, But the temptation with red-letter Bibles is to say something like this. There's the Bible, like all these 66 books, but then there's like the Bible. And it's Jesus' words. And and his words are what are meaningful. And it's his words that that really count. Yeah, yeah, the rest is important, but, but Jesus is especially important. And so you have this Bible within a Bible. Again, these movements, what they fail to recognize... And the irony is huge here. It's that's not how Jesus read the Bible. In fact, Jesus is saying, and here's what he's saying, that it's the red letters that give the black letters so much meaning. But he says more than that. He says the red letters give the black letters so much meaning, and further, they give the rest of the letters so much permanence, so much lasting power. He said this in our text, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So let me summarize. Jesus is saying something to the effect 
of the story understood with me at the center is not going anywhere. Until I return in glory, not a single smudge of ink, not a single dot of ink from the smallest letter to the smallest stroke of the pen is going anywhere. So here's our conclusion. After reading Matthew 5, 17 to 18, we should conclude this, that Jesus teaches us to read the whole story. Jesus teaches us to read the whole story with him at the center. And Jesus teaches us to read the whole story with him at the center as authoritative for all time. As authoritative for all time. In all of this, don't miss what this tells us about who Jesus is. As we said in our very first sermon in this series, who you believe Jesus to be, this preacher to be, changes everything about how you read the sermon. And we could, we, we could add this morning, who you believe this preacher to be changes everything about how you read your entire Bible. Jesus, we've said, is the Son of God. He's God. Again, he's God. Speaking to us not only as a divine messenger, but as the divine lawgiver himself. And despite other religions that have tried to lay claim to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the law, and the prophets, the story of Israel only finds its fulfillment and meaning in Jesus. Why? Because it was Jesus' story all along. Now only when we read the story like this will we be able to truly live it out. And that's good news because that's our second point. Point number two. Two points. Jesus teaches us what it means to live the story of the Bible. Matthew five nineteen to 20 says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's start, if we can, with verse 20. Because I think verse 20 will make verse 19 abundantly clear for us. See, scribes and Pharisees, do you see that in your Bibles right now? Scribes and Pharisees is ancient shorthand for extra super holy people. Uh, To quote my favorite children's Bible again. These are the religious leaders and, and teachers. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most holy, the most law observant, the most pious people you've ever encountered you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's shocking. It should be shocking now, just as it was shocking then. It's like he's saying, in effect, unless you're as good as LeBron James, you can't even pick up a basketball. Or unless you're as smart as Einstein, you can't even go to school. You can imagine the crowds wondering to themselves, why is he even teaching them? What is this kingdom good for if no one can enter it? Because surely, who can surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And here again, we learn what it means that Jesus has come to fulfill the story of Israel. Let me explain. If you read the Law and the Prophets, which, by the way, if you haven't picked up on by now, you should. You should read your Old Testaments. You should. You would see that the story has always looked ahead to a day when the law would not exist on mere stone tablets. When the law would not be just a matter of external observance, but the law has always pointed forward to a day when it would be deeply internalized. When it would be deeply lived out. A matter of the heart, not just outward obedience. And so much so that the prophets would say, 
it would be as if on this day the law was written on our hearts. And the prophet Ezekiel, he looks ahead to this day when he speaks on behalf of the Lord, on behalf of God, saying this in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, Ezekiel was talking about the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember where we've been so far in this series? Our text today comes after having read and, and looked at Matthew 5, verse 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's Jesus, the fulfillment of the story. The person this whole story was pointing towards the whole time. It's Jesus who takes our mixed loves and our fractured desires and our two weak desires, our whole interior lives, and changes them. And it's these people, internally and externally changed, it's these people who will see God in Jesus' kingdom. Again, for the next six weeks, Jesus will expand on this greater whole person righteousness as he looks at things like anger and lust and divorce and, and, and oath-taking and retaliation and loving our enemies. And, and for the next six weeks, we'll be faced with the same despair the crowd must be feeling at this very moment. Well, who can live up to this, Jesus? Who can do this? Who, who could possibly ever be this good? This pure. Here's the thing. Each time over the next six weeks you feel that despair rising up in your hearts. I want to give you a motto. If you're a new age person, you can be like a mantra. Here's the motto I want you to repeat to yourself over the next six weeks. If you want to take a picture of it on the screen behind me, do that. Here it is. Ready? Jesus has surpassed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was good inside and out. And through faith in Jesus and Jesus' work, his righteousness is credited to us. Not only in a legal sense, not only in the sense that we've been declared righteous or declared not guilty, but also for us to walk in today by his Spirit. He's clothed us with his righteousness by his Spirit. Now, in Jesus... We have new hearts, new hearts to love God, to love others from. It's these people, these whole person disciples of Jesus, inside, outside. Those are the ones who get into the kingdom of heaven. And now we can go back to verse 19. Jesus says there, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the bar has been set. The bar has been set. The standard has been established. Nothing less than the greater whole person, inside out, righteousness, that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees will get us into the kingdom of heaven. And we have two ways to respond this morning. The first way is this. You can choose, and we can choose, to relax these commandments and teach others to do the same. To take this opportunity, while Jesus is talking about ushering something new, to slip in our own revisions as well, right? To, to suggest something like, well, while we're doing away with the kosher laws, can we revisit the section uh, pertaining to our, our sexuality as well? And how we treat one another as well? It seems a bit repressive. seems a bit archaic. 
Again, Jesus is not throwing open the Torah and the prophets to radical revisioning according to our whims and our desires. The law and the prophets have their meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in him, and he dictates the terms. And we relax his commandments when we instead decide that we dictate the terms. When we make Jesus and the scriptures the servant of our desires, the enforcer of our more palatable religion. Now this relaxing happens in big public ways and in small little ways. Now we all we all can readily think of big public ways people relax the commands of Jesus. We all know people. We all know people who are supposed followers of Jesus who openly advocate as teachers for the legitimacy of same-sex marriage or are pro-abortion or, or openly believe that Jesus isn't that mad about their racism. Friends, if you, if you find yourself in that group this morning where you've clearly relaxed, loosened a teaching of Scripture to fit your agenda, to fit this cultural moment, I am so convinced that God has brought you here in His grace and mercy this morning because He loves you and He wants you to hear this warning. You will be called, if you do this and you persist in this and you teach others to do this as well, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And least in the kingdom of heaven does not mean that you will be a, a heavenly pool boy or something. Least in the kingdom of heaven is just another way of saying you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. John Chrysostom, the ancient church father, he puts it bluntly. But when you hear, he says, least in the kingdom of heaven, you are to think of nothing but hell and punishment. But this relaxing happens in small little ways as well. The, the danger is not just for those people, but, but for me and you this morning. Maybe even some of us who would say we are followers of Jesus. He, here's the crazy thing about our text, and I just noticed it this week and it blew my mind. Did you notice that the positive that Jesus pairs with the negative of relaxing is not not relaxing or being strict or being vocal. No, Jesus says that the opposite of relaxing his commands is, did you see it? Doing them. Living them out. Obeying them. For Jesus, proof of you not relaxing the commands of Scripture is seen in your doing. And that should fall on us, as it fell on me this week, with some weight this morning. It is only those who both do and teach them to do who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it is not only those who teach them to disregard who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who simply do not act on Jesus' commands who will not enter as well. In other words, to quote another New Testament author, if your faith does not have works, it's dead. It's dead. See, we could sit with this passage for years. Because on one hand, there's this tension at play. On one hand, Jesus lays the foundation for your justification and your righteousness in his work alone. 
It's not the temple. It's not our diet. It's not even our good deeds. Jesus alone fulfills the law and the prophets. We have been saved by grace through faith. Jesus does what we cannot do. And by faith, that righteousness, that goodness can be ours this morning, today. And at the exact same moment, here's the tension, Jesus reminds us that this faith that saves is never alone. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us a new heart, all with the aim of us being obedient to him. All with the aim of us being doers of the word fulfilled in Jesus. Indeed, if we do not, we will never enter the kingdom. The stakes cannot be any higher. Again, we find that the beginning of the sermon is asking us to consider its ending. Jesus will conclude the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see this in a few months' time, by saying this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.